This is episode 132 of the IDRA Class Notes Podcast. Here in the background, college is not for everybody. What's the civil rights issue there? Well, the civil rights issue is that there's a premise that undergirds that kind of thinking. And whenever we begin to talk about who college is not for, it always ends up being kids of color or kids who are poor or kids whose first language is English. And so somehow or another, that kind of systemic stereotype perpetuates itself. And what we have to do is to fight those kinds of stereotypes and create new regularities that say that college is for everybody. Welcome to IDRA's Class Notes, our podcast. Dr. Bradley Scott and myself, Alberto Montemayor, are going to be having a dialogue about the six generations of civil rights. So, Dr. Scott, why are there six generations of civil rights? It's just been a matter of time and how things have broken down in this current era of uh, civil rights, starting from the Brown versus the Board of Education uh, Supreme Court decision back in 1954. The 10 equity assistance centers across the nation have continually come together around what civil rights looks like and what shapes civil rights in this nation. And so we do see these six generations. We are in right now the sixth generation itself, but it does start back in 1954 for about a 10-year period. Civil rights was pretty much driven by litigation and court action. So between 1954 and 1964, there was that first generation. Uh, With the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, there was about a 20-year period between 64 and 1983, when legislative action drove uh, what was happening in Americans' public schools. The Civil Rights Act, of course, of 1964, the Educational Amendments of 1972, of course, the clarification of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. through the May 25th Memorandum around language and ethnic origin. National origin came into the picture. National origin came mm-hmm. into the picture. Certainly, the Educational Amendments of 1972 brought about a consideration for sex equity and With Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, certainly disability and civil rights around disabilities became the law of the land. And so that happened during that second generation. The third generation, believe it or not, started in about 1983. We had five major reports, the most famous of which was The Nation at Risk, I think that many people remember. So between 1983 and 1990, there was this third generation of civil rights Uh, We were told in that period that this was going to be the first time in our nation's history when we would produce a generation of students who were going to be less well-educated than their parents, and so we had to, had to do something about public schools. So this was even broader than civil rights. I mean, it was the broader whole than nation civil rights that looked at everything. Alone. Yes. It was about what public education was right. going to look like and how it needed to benefit all kinds of learners. So that's, but there was also an acute need with the children you're most focused on. Exactly. Kids by race, by color, mm-hmm. national origin, gender, economic class, and disability. And then in 1990, our nation's governors, led by Bill Clinton, began to talk about a different era of public education. And so it was driven by states and their educational reforms, and in some instances, the national government. But nonetheless, that fourth generation focused on what states needed to do in order to ensure civil rights 
protections for all kinds of learners because it was already clear by then that our nation was becoming more and more diverse. Uh, the student population was more and more different. And we had to think about what America was going to look like in the 21st century, which was quickly approaching. Mm-hmm. And it, all of a sudden, in the fifth generation, it hit us in 2000, and particularly 2001, when the No Child Left Behind Act came, uh, the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act came into play. That brought in the fifth generation of civil rights and educational equity. And by the way, that was the first time in our nation that we began to disaggregate data by race and by language. And by now, with all the criticism there were, what didn't work with NCLB, for the children and the families you're most concerned about, here finally there was going to be a measure, a notice. Absolutely. Yes. And that was hugely important because uh, that way you would unmask what was really happening mm-hmm. uh, to kids in uh, their educational experiences in our public schools. Well, now we find ourselves in a sixth generation that probably came in and began to really take real focus when the current administration presented to the nation the blueprint for educational reform that many of us as educators became aware of back in 2009, but has become more prominent in the thinking of what the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act will need to look like. It still hasn't been reauthorized. No, it hasn't been reauthorized yet, but those principles, the priorities of that document, we are beginning to see manifest themselves so that we're looking at things like college going, uh, high school completion and the importance of that, building a generation of learners who are ready not for national competitiveness, but for global competitiveness and competency. So it's very, very different. And also how this whole notion of systemic equity needs to happen, that there needs to be in the way that structures and systems operate in public education, a notion of a regularity about creating access regardless of race and class and color equitable treatment, high outcomes for all kinds of learners, no matter who they are. Well, you know, in Texas, we just had a law, it's revised every two years or it seems to shift, where you you hear in the background, college is not for everybody. What's the civil rights issue there? Well, the civil rights issue is that there's a premise that undergirds that kind of thinking. And whenever we begin to talk about who college is not for, it always ends up being kids of color or kids who are poor or kids whose first language is English. And so somehow or another, that kind of systemic stereotype about certain populations of students perpetuates itself. And what we have to do as educators and as citizens is to fight those kinds of stereotypes and those regularities and create new regularities, regularities that say that college is for everybody and that college has to be accessible for everybody and that school going beyond high school is imperative in a nation, a democracy that wants to keep itself competitive on a global stage. And more importantly than that, that we don't try to take old practices and reinstitute them in a 2013 context. So for instance, I'm concerned personally that in a state like our own here in Texas, we have these graduated kind of requirements uh, where certain kids will not be taking certain kinds of courses, uh, Algebra 2, for instance. And that may, in fact, impact their their ability to get into post-secondary schools in the same way as their counterparts. But, you know, I don't agree with it, but I hear some people saying... You're doing a disservice to give false expectations to a student that doesn't have the brain or the whatever to make it through algebra to it and pre-calculus and things like that. I think it's even worse 
to begin to write students off and not even present them with an opportunity. I think under the law, everybody should have at least an equal chance. And for people like me and others as Equity Assistance Center directors, we talk about an equitable opportunity Mm -hmm. so that you meet learners where they are. And since you're holding them to the same standards anyway, you provide interventions with them that respond to who they are. In other words, you teach in a way that they're going to learn. Going to learn, and you start where they are and move them to where they need to be. That's much different than saying, well, uh, these students are being uh, dealt a disservice because they are not going to college or probably won't go to college. Why write them off even before they have a chance to even taste of the fruits of, of opportunity in a democracy? So we say no. Operate with the premise that everybody should be presented with every opportunity to have access, and then they decide what choices they want to make about how their lives will move. So besides the dilemma that we have right now, they seem to be reinstituting the old vocational-led strands, calling them something else. What are some other structural issues that are appearing? So I don't have a problem with vocational education strands. I do have a problem with matters of tracking. That's one of those persistent old issues. So that some populations get tracked into those lower strands or into vocational courses and away from college-going courses. And that kind of tracking, that kind of ability grouping, we have fought that for almost 50 years now. And so it's showing up in a different kind of way, a more sophisticated looking way, but at its core, in my mind, there are still some of these same tracking and ability grouping aspects about it that we know from research serve no good and don't work, simply just don't work. Limited expectations just don't work. Just don't work, absolutely. So beyond that, what are some other structural issues you see in terms of... Well, for me and for my colleagues, the other nine directors around the country, resource allocations and distribution is another structural issue. So boards of education making decisions about which schools in a given school district should get resources and have great Mm -hmm. uh, teachers and have the most experienced teachers and, and, and which ones should not are structural issues that keep perpetuating themselves so that poor kids, linguistically different kids, highly concentrated minority populations tend to get fewer resources, are resources that are not comparable. There's not equity in terms of finances, in terms of uh, teachers and years of experience, in terms of course selections and offerings that they provide, activities that they provide, all of these structural issues about the process of schooling that tend to be unequal and in many instances disequilibrated at their core means that some kids get greater opportunities than others. So within a district, with the same district, you might have a high school that has all these advanced courses and dual credit, and you'll have another one that has very limited offerings. Absolutely. But they'll also tell you why offer them if these kids can't handle it. If they can't handle them, or in some instances, I mean, bizarre things. I work with a district in Louisiana where they have chemistry and physics on one high school campus on one side of a bank of a river that flows through the city, And on the other side, they don't have these offerings in another high school. And when I asked the question why they don't, they said, well, they couldn't afford it. I said, well, can you get kids from one high school to the other? They said, well, no, we don't want to jeopardize them by driving them across this rickety bridge. And so they are finding reasons to deny comparable opportunity for chemistry, for algebra, for physics, 
to one population and it just so happens that that population that was being denied this benefit was the minority population. It just happened that it way. It just seemed to have happened that way and I'm, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That these decisions that are persistent and continual continue uh, to disadvantage one segment of the student population and that population tends always to be the minority population, the poor population, that population that's already disenfranchised and now they're being put at a greater disadvantage. You know, Dr. Scott, you work in a five-state area and obviously you're connected to all the national centers. Have you found some places that in fact all these kids are getting access and having a, a relatively equitable chance to be prepared for college? The poor ones, the minority, the suits of color? I, I wrote a book uh, on a research study back in 1994 here at IDR called Pockets of Excellence. And it just so happens that I'm still seeing pockets of excellence, not universal excellence and equity. Uh, but you see some campuses, you see some grade levels where you see individual campuses and leaders, uh, teacher leaders, principal leaders, who are doing an excellent job. I'm seeing a few more of those, but not nearly enough when you look at so, the disaggregated data. So what are the elements you see that make those campuses work? Well, one, people care about the students that they are working with and the families they are serving, so that no matter who they are, these teachers, these principals come in with this notion that we can make a difference in the lives and the educational experience of these kids and their families in this district. Uh, secondly, there is this desire when we don't have the capacity and skills we need, we look for and, and work to improve ourselves so that we improve opportunities for our kids and for the families that we are serving. And then the third thing is that you have both teachers and leaders who fight for resources to flow uh, toward those campuses so that kids and their families, learners and their families can have rich learning experiences. Fourth, you find people who are willing to work with the mothers, the fathers, the, the guardians of the kids who attend those schools. They invite them into those campuses and say, we don't know how we're going to get this done, but let's roll up our sleeves and be partners. We are equals among equals here to deal with these issues. And then once they begin experiencing their successes and they begin to embrace those successes and they work to bring others in so that they create, and even in the, the worst of circumstances, and they realize it takes a lot of work, but they, they begin to make a difference in the lives of the kids they, they touch. And that's the kind of work we need to continue to do as we move public schools forward. I'm glad to close at least on a high note. These might be pockets of excellence, but they exist. Thank you, Dr. Scott, and thank you all thank for you. listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.